ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا وسيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله اما بعد Today then we begin with the hadith where Al-Imam Al-Bukhari mentions قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا مُسَدَّدْ قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا عَبْدُ الْوَارِثْ عَنْ عَبْدِ الْعَزِيزِ عَنْ أَنَسْ قَالَ قَالَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ إِذَا دَعَوْتُمُ اللَّهَ فَاعْزِمُوا فِي الدُّعَاءِ وَلَا يَقُولَنَّ أَحَدُكُمْ إِنْ شِئْتَهُ فَأَعْطِنِي فَإِنَّ اللَّهَ لَا مُسْتَكْرِهَ لَهُ <coughs> In this hadith of Anas, he says that the messenger وسلم, mentioned or said that when you make dua, then be firm in your intent for that dua. Have a resoluteness in making that dua. وَلَا يَقُولَنَّ أَحَدُكُمْ And none of you should say, إِنْ شِئْتَ فَأَعْطِنِي That if you wish, then give me meaning making dua to Allah, then you don't say, Oh Allah, if you will, if you wish, then give me X, Y, or Z. Rather, you ask Allah with resoluteness in your dua, knowing that Allah will answer. So no one from amongst you should say, If you wish, if you will, then give me. For indeed, there is no one who can prevent Allah or force Allah to give or not to give. So it's not like you have to say, Oh Allah, if you will, then give me this or that, as if to indicate that maybe there is some other influence in Allah's decision to give you that or not. There is no other influence in Allah's decision. Allah gives to whom He wills. So when you make your dua, this hadith says, basically don't make it half-heartedly. When making dua, you are not supposed to make dua half-heartedly. When you make dua, you're supposed to make dua with a full heart, with absolute firmness in that dua, in your asking of Allah, not in a half-hearted way, maybe Allah, if you will, if this, if that, maybe you could give me this, maybe that. Dua is not made in a half-hearted way. Dua is to be made with a full heart, with full desire for that thing that you are asking Allah with that resolute mindset that Allah will answer you, that Allah answers the dua. So it, sh- it says here, the point of course is, in shi'ta, 
answer me or give me this if you will. And that is the chapter that we're on, talking about the Mashi'ah of Allah. So this hadith, of course, affirms the Mashi'ah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. As Shaykh al-Uthameen says, وَفِي هَذَا الْحَدِيثِ أَدَبٌ عَظِيمٌ فِي الدُّعَاءِ In this hadith is a great etiquette when making dua. وَهُوَ أَنَّ الْإِنسَانِ إِذَا دَعَ اللَّهِ And that is, that when a person makes dua to Allah, سَوَاءٌ بِاسْتِغْفَارِ whether it is that you are seeking forgiveness or other than seeking forgiveness, whatever your dua may be. And this wording is more general than the other version of this narration where it says, La yaqul ahadukum Allahumma ghfirli in shi'ta. None of you say, Oh Allah, forgive me if you will. Forgive me if you will. If you wish. In this narration, it is more general. In this narration, the wording simply says, La yaqulanna ahadukum in shi'ta fa'atini. None of you say, That oh Allah, if you wish, then give me this or that. فَالَّذِي مَعَنَا أَعَمْ وَيَشْمَلْ أَيَّ دُعَاءِ So the narration we have here is more general and incorporates any type of dua that you make. So do not say in dua, اللهم اغفر لي إن شئت أو الله فقف لي إف يو وش اللهم ارحمني إن شئت Oh Allah, forgive me if you wish. Allahumma rzuqni in shi'ta. Oh Allah, bestow upon me the sustenance if you wish. Allahumma alimni in shi'ta. Oh Allah, give me knowledge if you wish. You do not make your dua in that type of format which indicates a half-hearted approach in your recognition of Allah answering your dua. كُلُّ الدُّعَا لَا تَقُلْ فِيهِ Any dua that you make, do not say in it, in shi'ta. You don't say in the dua, Allah give me this or that, if you wish. Because that indicates you are being half-hearted in your dua, that you don't have that conviction in the dua you are making and asking for. You don't have the conviction in Allah answering your dua. You're making it half-heartedly. Allah give me this if you wish. Oh Allah allow me that if you wish. That is a half-hearted approach with no conviction in your dua, with no uh, conviction in your belief that Allah will answer you. And therefore you do not make dua in that way. Bal, rather, what you do is I'zim. You do it with conviction. Waqul and say, Allahumma ghfirli, 
Oh Allah, forgive me. You ask for that forgiveness with conviction. That Allah is the one who forgives. And he is the one who will forgive your shortcomings. You ask for forgiveness on your shortcomings with conviction in that dua. With conviction in your asking of Allah to forgive you. With conviction that Allah can forgive you and will forgive you. And the same with Allahumma arhamni. Oh Allah have mercy upon me. You ask with conviction knowing Allah is the one who can have mercy upon you. Allahumma razuqni. You ask Allah with conviction. Allah give me sustenance and provisions. Not half-heartedly. You ask with conviction. Make that dua with that resoluteness. Wholeheartedness. Allahumma allimni. Oh Allah, give me knowledge. Increase my knowledge. Give me knowledge. Again, ask with conviction for that. Knowing that Allah will answer and can answer you. Biduni an taqul. Without saying. In your dua, in shi'ta, which is basically insha'Allah. As Shaykh Al-Fawzani mentioned, when you make dua, you don't say, oh Allah, forgive me, etc. Insha'Allah. Allah, give me this or that, insha'Allah. That you don't, because that then is the same as this. If you will, Allah, give me this or that. That is half-hearted. It is as though you do not have conviction that Allah will answer your dua. So you do not do that when making dua. Why? Because if you do that, the reality is it is an indication that, that you have a deficiency in your tawheed. It is an indication that you have a deficiency in your understanding of tawheed. How so? Because when you make your dua in that half-hearted way, without conviction that Allah will answer your dua, it is as though you think there is something to prevent Allah in answering your dua. It indicates that maybe there is something that would prevent Allah from answering your dua. Your lack of conviction that Allah can answer you is a deficiency then in your tawheed. You need to have conviction. Absolutely that Allah can answer you. Allah hears you and will answer you. But if you ask Allah in a half-hearted way, it can be an indication that you believe maybe Allah can't answer this dua of mine, won't answer this dua of mine. And that is a deficiency in Tawheed. Hence, this chapter is mentioned in Kitab al-Tawheed in a chapter regarding this hadith and making dua and making it with conviction. So it is actually, as the Sheikh says, bad etiquette and bad manners with Allah that you make dua without conviction. As though to say, well, maybe Allah can answer my dua here, maybe not. That is, of course, a deficiency in your understanding. It says in the hadith, فَإِنَّ اللَّهَ لَا مُسْتَكْرِهَ لَهُ That there is no one <coughs> to compel or force Allah to do this or that. There is nobody who forces or compels Allah in anything. So you make your dua with conviction and not in a half-hearted way.
wa fi hadha min su'il adab fi du'a so there is bad etiquette bad etiquette in your du'a if you ask allah with that half-hearted approach if you will allah then give me this or that if you will have mercy upon me there is bad etiquette in making du'a in that way firstly the sheikh says awwalan annahu yush'ir aw yash'ur بأن الداعي يرى أن الله له مكره فكأنه يقول إذا أكرهت فإن شئت فعلت كذا وكذا وإن شئت فلا تفعل It is as though you are indicating or it is indicated by your lack of conviction in your dua being answered that there is some outside influence that would compel Allah in one way or another. And that is of course completely false. There is no compulsion upon Allah this way or that way. Secondly, the reason why it also has bad etiquette to say, Oh Allah forgive me if you will. Oh Allah uh, give me this if you will. It indicates that you do not really fully care about the dua you're making. يَدُلُّ عَلَىٰ أَوْ يُشْعِرْ بِاسْتِغْنَاءِ الدَّاعِ عَنِ اللَّهِ It indicates and can be inferred from that speech of yours that you feel like it's not the, the ultimate point of resort. Oh Allah, give me this if you will. And if you don't and I don't get it, then it's not a big deal. That is what can be understood potentially from the one making a dua with a lack of conviction. Oh Allah, give me this if you will. And if I'm not given it, then it's no big deal. That is what can be perceived from the one making a dua with a lack of conviction and firm desire to achieve that dua. لِأَنَّكَ لَوْ قَالَ لَكَ قَائِلٌ the Shaykh says, because if somebody was to say to you, Turidu kada wa kada, do you want X, Y, and Z? Do you want this mobile phone? And you say, In shi'ta, if you want, if you want to give it to me. When somebody says to you, Do you want this mobile phone? Free. You say, Well, if you want to give it to me, then what does that response indicate? It can be understood, well, this person doesn't really care too much then. And that's the second point here. It's a lack of etiquette in asking in a way that doesn't show your conviction. Compare that to somebody who says, absolutely, I'll take it, I'll take it. Now, conviction, the person, okay, he knows you want it, take it. But when you say, well, okay, if you want to give it to me, then that is a type of, you can perceive from that, you can understand from that, that this person isn't really too bothered then. So that's what could be understood from it, uh, and therefore that is obviously from the bad etiquette with Allah, that you make a dua in a way where it can be understood that you're not really all that bothered. Thirdly, أَنَّهُ قَدْ يُشْعِرْ بِأَنَّ هَذَا عَظِيمٌ عَلَى اللَّهِ وَكَبِيرٌ عَلَيْهِ Thirdly, 
when you make dua with a lack of conviction that oh Allah give me such and such oh Allah allow me to purchase that new phone allow me to purchase that car allow me to have this allow me to have that but you make this dua in a half-hearted way with a lack of conviction if you will Allah then give me this or that then it can also indicate and we've touched upon this point it can indicate that you seem to think it may be too much for Allah to give you it may be too much for Allah to give you that you're asking for something tremendous you're asking for something big and you feel that maybe it's too much for Allah to give you. It's too great an ask from Allah. And if you make your dua in a way that indicates that it's too much of an ask, so you're asking, well, if you can give me that, if you can give me this, as though to indicate it may be too much of an ask from Allah to give you that, then that is, of course, from the evil and the bad etiquette. Nothing is overburdening of Allah. Nothing is of an excessive ask of Allah. Allah can answer the dua of anyone of anything. So if you make a dua in this half-hearted way, it could be understood and you may have this feeling that maybe you think it's too much for Allah to give you. It's too much of an ask of Allah. And that is a deficiency in your tawheed because nothing is too much of an ask from Allah. وَلِهَذَا جَاءَ فِي اللَّفْظِ الْآخَرِ And that's why it's mentioned in another wording of this narration. وَلْيُعَظِّمَ الرَّغْبَةِ That when you make dua, basically make it with passion. That you really want something, you're making dua, they don't make it half-heartedly. Don't make it, oh Allah, maybe this, maybe that, if you can. When you make in dua for something, then you make it with passion. You make it with conviction. Knowing that Allah is the one who hears, the one who answers the dua, the one who can answer any dua. So you make it with passion. With that real desire to achieve what you're asking for. يعني yes. You may ask Allah for the greatest thing. It could be something huge, something really big. Yet, there is nothing too big or too great for Allah to give. Now, when you talk about people, you may say to somebody, uh, let me have some item that person possesses. Let me borrow your car, for example. You need to go on a journey. Your car is, has its, it's had its best days. So you need to borrow the car of a brother who's got a 68 plate, mashallah. Just got it the other day. So now your car isn't going to make it to London and back. You want to ask this brother if you can borrow his car. But you know that's pushing it a bit. It is a big ask. 
He's only got 12 miles on his clock yet. You know it's going to be a bit of a feeling from that brother that you're asking a bit much. I could give it to you. It's not going to do anything to me. You add 300 miles onto it. Not going to do anything to the car. Brand new 68. But you know that for this brother to give that to you now, it's for him he's going to feel like it's a bit much. It's a bit much. Yet here the point is you could ask Allah for the biggest thing and Allah can give it to you and it would never be a case of that being a bit much what Allah has given. Nothing is a bit much for Allah to give. So that is the third point here that you do not make your dua with a lack of conviction as though to say maybe that will be a bit much for Allah to give. There is nothing that is a bit much to give. لذلك نهي الإنسان أن يقول اللهم أعطيني إن شئت سواء كان بالمغفرة أو بغير المغفرة And that's why for these types of reasons when you make dua particularly when seeking forgiveness asking for the mercy of Allah you don't say Allah forgive me if you will as though there is too much of an ask in that as though you don't really care Allah forgive me if you will so you have conviction in your dua, you make it with passion what you desire, and no matter how big it may be, and you think that is too much of an ask, it is impossible, how could this occur? Nothing is too much of an ask from Allah, nothing is too much of a burden, that does not exist. If anybody has that idea or thought, then that is where the deficiency in your tawheed is, thinking that this is too much, how could this ever be? How could this ever occur for me? So you don't make your dua with conviction, believing it couldn't really occur. It couldn't really happen. How could this really, what is it really going to happen? A person thinks in that way sometimes. A person thinks in that way. He wants something, but he thinks it's so far out of reach, it's almost impossible. It's almost impossible for it to happen. So when you make your dua, you're not even making your dua with real conviction that Allah can decree that for you to happen tomorrow because you believe it's so far-fetched and that is a deficiency in Tawheed a deficiency in Tawheed for a person to think in that way you make your dua with conviction and you don't know what may occur فَإِنْ قَالَ قَائِلْ إِنْ شَاءَ اللَّهِ كَمَا يُوجَدُ عِنْدَ كَثِيرٍ مِنَ الْعَامَّةِ يَقُولُونَ اللَّهِ يَغْفِرْ لَهُ إِنْ شَاءَ اللَّهِ وَاللَّهُ يُعَافِيهِ إِنْ شَاءَ اللَّهِ مَا حُكْمُ هَذَا The shaykh says some like commoners, commoners they may say, may Allah forgive such and such إِنْ شَاءَ اللَّهِ And may Allah pardon and give good health to such and such إِنْ شَاءَ اللَّهِ Then what is the ruling on this type of statement? هَذِهِ إِنْ قُصِدَ بِهَا أَتَّبَرُّكَ فَلَا بَأْسِ وَإِنْ قُصِدَ بِهَا الشَّرْطِ فَإِنَّهُ يُنْهَى عَنْهَا وَلَكِنَّهَا أَقَلْ مِنْ قَوْلِهِ إِنْ شِئْتَ Saying إِنْشَاءَ اللَّهِ is very similar to what we're talking about إِنْ شِئْتَ if you will Insha'Allah is almost the same if Allah wills. The Shaykh says though, 
if a person said that desiring barakah from that statement saying that may Allah forgive him inshallah meaning that it is in the control of Allah and Allah is the one who forgives and it is his will to forgive with that type of meaning not with the types of meanings of a lack of conviction etc we've been talking about then it would be allowable but if a person is saying it with the same meanings as we've been talking about now then inshallah being added on is also not allowed and not correct to be added on so as for a person saying allahumma ghfirli in shi'ta hadha haram saying oh allah forgive me if you will that is haram making it in that way the dua is not correct not permissible and there is evil etiquette and bad etiquette with allah in doing it in that way of a lack of conviction Then after that, move on to the next narration. That is where Al-Imam Al-Bukhari says, قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا أَبُوا الْيَمَانِ قَالَ أَخْبَرَنَا شُعَيْبَ عَنِ الزُّهْرِ تَحْوِيلْ حَا وَقَالَ حَدَّثَنَا إِسْمَاعِيلْ قَالَ حَدَّثَنِي أَخِي عَبْدُ الْحَمِيدِ عَنْ سُلَيْمَانِ عَنْ مُحَمَّدِ بْنِ أَبِي عَتِيقِ عَنِ بْنِ شِهَابِ عَنْ عَلِي بْنِ حُسَيْن عليهما السلام أخبره أن علي بن أبي طالب أخبره أن رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم طرقه وفاطمة بنت رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم ليلة فقال لهم ألا تصلون قال علي فَقُلْتُ يَا رَسُولَ اللَّهِ إِنَّمَا أَنفُسُنَا بِيَدِ اللَّهِ فَإِذَا شَاءَ أَنْ يَبْعَثَنَا بَعَثَنَا فَانْصَرَفَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهِ وسلم حِينَ قُلْتُ ذَلِكَ وَلَمْ يَرْجِعِ إِلَيَّ شَيْئًا ثُمَّ سَمِعْتُهُ وَهُوَ مُدْبِرٌ يَضْرِبُ فَخِذَهُ وَيَقُولُ in this narration it says read it out This narration it mentions how the Prophet وسلم, uh, came upon Ali radiallahu anhu uh, and Fatima and said, Are you not praying the night? 
the night prayer. So, Ali radiallahu anhu said, O Messenger of Allah, our souls are in the hand of Allah. If Allah wishes to awaken us, awaken us, bring us to life, but uh, the meaning of it in the context is to awaken us from the night. Because in the night, when you sleep, it is known as الوفات الصغرى, the minor death. Because your soul exits from your body, and the exiting of the soul from the body is the definition of death. So here, if he wishes to, what was it again? Bring us to life, meaning if he wishes to awaken us, that we're going to wake up, then we're going to wake up. فَانصَرَفَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ So the messenger left, and uh, when I said that to him, when Ali said that to him, and he didn't reply with anything, he just left. Then he says, I heard him saying as he was leaving, striking his uh, thighs, that indeed mankind is ever quarrelsome. The point of the narration is that Ali radiallahu anhu said, إِذَا شَاءَ أَنْ يَبْعَثَنَا بَعَثَنَا that if he, wishes us, if he wishes to bring us to life, for us to wake up, then we will. وَفِيهِ دَلِيلٌ وَاضِحٌ عَلَىٰ أَنَّا فَعَالَ الْعِبَادِ تَقَعُوا بِمَشِئَةِ اللَّهِ مَعَىٰ أَنَّا فِعْلَ النَّائِمُ وَهُوَ إِسْتِيقَاضُهُ لَيْسَ بِاخْتِيَارِهِ So this indicates that the actions of the servants, they are by the will of Allah. They are by the will of Allah. Despite the fact that when a person is asleep, him waking up is technically not his own action anyway. That he is waking up, that is something which occurs without his choice as such. But the point being, the actions that we do, they are by the will of Allah. And we've discussed that before. فَقَدْ يُقَالْ إِنَّ الْإِسْتِدْلَالَ بِذَلِكَ لَا Naam, the point here being in the narration it says, إِذَا شَاءَ أَنْ يَبْعَثَنَا بَعَثَنَا If Allah wills to bring us back to life, then He will bring us back to life. That is simply another evidence therefore on the issue of the Mashi'ah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Then after that, قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا مُحَمَّدِ بْنُ سِنَانَ قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا فُلَيْحِ قال حدثنا هلال بن علي عن عطاء بن يسار عن ابي هريره رضي الله عنه ان رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم قال مثل المؤمن كمثل خامه زرع يفيء ورقه من حيث اتتها الريح تكفئها فاذا سكنت اعتدلت وكذلك المؤمن يكفئ بالبلاء وَمَثَلُ الْكَافِرِ كَمَثَلِ الْأَرْزَهِ سَمَّاءَ مُعْتَدِلَهِ حَتَّى يَقْصِمَهَ اللَّهُ إِذَا شَاءَ With Here the Prophet ﷺ gives an example, a parable. And these types of examples are given in the Sunnah often. And the purpose of them is, as they say, to make the point clearer basically. To make a point clearer, to make it more understandable, 
then often you see these examples being given. So the example being given here is that the example of a believer is like that of a fresh green plant that its leaves move as the wind blows it. And then when the wind calms down, then those leaves, they settle. And similarly, the believer, he is So the example of a believer is that he is tested basically, tested by the calamities. He may be perturbed by those calamities, but then after they pass, then the believer similarly settles and comes. Just like the plant and its leaves, when the winds come, the strong winds, they come, they blow it around and it is disturbed But when the wind settles, those leaves, they settle. The believer is moved around, disturbed, tested by these trials. But when they pass, then the believer settles once again. But then the example of the kafir is like... The example of the disbeliever is like that of a pine tree, solid and firm, <coughs> and it only it is only broken then, only removed then when Allah cuts it down. If he wills, what's the wording used at the end? When he wills. Again, you can see the purpose of the narration is the part where it says and affirms the will of Allah once again. So the Shaykh says here, هذا مثل من أمثال الرسول صلى الله عليه وسلم والأمثال في القرآن والسنة تقرب المعقول إلى العقول. This is an example the Messenger gives, and these examples and parables, they basically make those points clearer and easier to understand. لِأَنَّهَا تَضْرِبُ الْمَحْسُوسِ مَثَلًا Because they make something physical, that example, into something physical, that point into something physical. وَتُصَوِّرُ الْإِنسَانِ لِلْمَحْسُوسِ وَتَصَوُّرِ الْإِنسَانِ لِلْمَحْسُوسِ أَقْرَبْ مِنْ تَصَوُّرِهِ لِلْمَعْقُولِ And for a person to understand something physical is easier than to understand an abstract concept. To understand an abstract concept is more difficult than to understand something physically like this and like that. So when you can see an example of an abstract concept in some physical way, then that makes it easier to understand that point. And that is what is occurring here and occurs in the sunnah often. وَفِي ضَرْبِ الْأَمْثَالِ فَائِدَ أُصُولِيَّ فَقْهِيَّةِ And also there is another benefit, a principal benefit in giving these types of examples. أَنَّ كُلَّ مِثَلٍ أو مثل ضَرَبَهُ اللَّهُ أَوْ رَسُولُهُ فَهُوَ دَلِيلٌ عَلَى ثُبُوتِ الْقِيَاسِ لِأَنَّ الْمَقْسُودِ بِهِ تَمْثِيلٌ هَذَا بِهَذَا 
فَيَكُونُ مُثْبِتًا لِلْقِيَاسِ Here the Shaykh says that these examples and parables that are given, they can be used as an evidence to say that Qiyas is legitimate. What is Qiyas? An analogy and how does it work? So you have an issue in the religion where a ruling has been mentioned about it clearly. You have something in the religion, a topic, an issue, and a ruling has been mentioned about that particular issue in the religion. For example, harming yourselves, harming yourselves, killing yourselves. We know the ruling on that is it is Haram, the issue of self-harm, clearly mentioned in the Quran and the Sunnah that it is haram. So we have an issue and we have the ruling on it. Now you may come across some other issue that is not mentioned in the Quran and there is no direct ruling on that issue. So now you want to decide what is the ruling on this issue then. You come across now, for example, smoking. Is smoking cigarettes mentioned in the Quran and the Sunnah? Not like that. So now you want to decide what's the fatwa then? It's not in the Quran and the Sunnah about these cigarettes and whether smoking this nicotine is halal or haram or what's the ruling? It's not in the Quran anywhere. Doesn't mention this nicotine and cigarettes and everything. So how are we going to be able to now give a ruling on it? You can look into the Quran and the Sunnah for an issue that is in the same field of thought, an issue that is in the same arena, in the same zone, and then make a comparison between them using the common cause the common reason, the illah, to put the ruling of the issue that you've got in the Qur'an and the Sunnah onto the item that you haven't got. So now we know self-harm, killing yourself, etc. is haram by the text of the Qur'an and the Sunnah. We know that nicotine and cigarettes and these things cause harm to your body, can kill you, all sorts of things. So now we have a common denominator between the two. Due to now having this common denominator between the two issues, we can therefore determine that the ruling of this is going to be the same as that. That in the Quran it says is haram, this must therefore be haram also. But it didn't say in the Quran that nicotine is haram. Therefore you have come to this conclusion via the qiyas, the analogy you've made. In the Quran, for example, it mentions alcohol. Quran and Sunnah tells us about the impermissibility of alcohol. Alcohol ruling haram. Now you come along with cocaine. You come along with some heroin, drugs. Are those drugs 
mentioned by name in the Quran, cocaine, heroin, this, that, the other. They're not mentioned. So what is the ruling on them? Somebody says to you, it doesn't say in the Quran and the Sunnah it's haram. What are you going to say to them? Same type of situation. These are just loose examples. They may not be implemented in this way directly, but just to highlight what qiyas is. You could now say alcohol. We have a ruling for that in the Quran, haram. What's the reason behind that ruling of it being haram? What is the reason behind it due to its intoxicating effect? Due to its intoxicating nature. These drugs, they have an intoxicating nature upon you. They have an intoxicating effect upon you. Intoxication meaning that they remove your mental faculties, they remove your abilities. So now we have a common illah, a common denominator. Cocaine isn't mentioned in the Quran. Alcohol is in the Quran and the Sunnah. Alcohol is haram because of its intoxicating impact. These drugs now have that very same, very similar intoxicating impact. Therefore, we can make the qiyas and say that these drugs are also haram. That's analogy. So here the shaykh says, these types of analogies that are given, these parables that are given, then they are a proof that you are allowed to make rulings on things via analogies. Because it is a disputed type of thing, whether you can give rulings in that way of qiyas, but the scholars generally accept it. And here the shaykh, he gives this example as an evidence to say, why that would be acceptable, making qiyas on issues that are not specifically mentioned in the Quran and the Sunnah due to the common denominator between them and others that are in the Quran and the Sunnah and then matching the ruling and therefore having the same ruling. So here the example was given about the leaf that blows around when the wind has that impact upon it. And that is the example of a believer being pushed around or being uh, uh, in that turmoil from trials and tribulations. But that when they calm, just like when the wind it comes, then that believer is settled and calm once again. And the believer does not, he is not broken by those trials and tribulations. فَهُوَ لَيٍّ لَا يَتَكَسَّرْ الْمُؤْمِنْ كَذَلِكَ فِي قَضَاءِ اللَّهِ وَقَدَرِهِ That the leaves, green fresh leaves, no matter how much wind blows on them, they simply blow around. They don't rip up. Whereas autumn dry leaves, dried up leaves, a lot of wind comes, it may crack off and go. It's dried up, there's nothing left of it. But a fresh green leaf, that isn't going to crack open in the wind blowing it. It will blow around, but then when the wind finishes, it will all be there intact. So that's the example of a believer. When the difficulties come, the trials and the tribulations come, you maintain your trust in Allah. You maintain that dependence and reliance in Allah, and you are not broken by those trials and difficulties and tribulations. In أَصَابَتْهُ sabara. When a believer is tested with difficulty, then you remain patient.
وَإِنْ أَصَابَتْهُ السَّرَّاءَ شَكَرَ And when goodness comes to you, some goodness and happiness, then you thank Allah for that. And that's why there is the debate between the scholars, who is more virtuous, a person in poverty who is patient or a person in riches who is grateful. Allah blesses a person with wealth and that person is grateful and thankful to Allah and righteous, uses it in righteousness. Grateful and thankful to Allah. The other person, Allah decrees upon him poverty. But he keeps and maintains his dependence and trust and piety. And remains patient upon the decree of Allah. Who is more virtuous? The one who shows gratitude to Allah and piety. And uses that wealth in the path of Allah. Or the one who was poor and is patient upon that test. Which of them is more virtuous? The rich and the grateful or the poor and the patient? Poor and the patient? So you're saying the rich one who can give is more virtuous? So which one is the strong one? So the rich one. <laughs> so the rich one. You're saying the rich one then. So you're saying you don't want to give an answer really. Anybody else? They are both equal. The poor one. You're not going to get to an answer because the scholars haven't got to an answer. It's debated amongst the scholars. There are a number of reasons you could mention as to why the rich one who is grateful to Allah is superior. There are a number of reasons you could mention as to why the one in poverty and trial but patient is greater in virtue. But the scholars have said each one has his virtue in a different way. Rather than comparing, as we may say, apples and pears, each one has his virtue in a different way. It's a bit like when they say, and we've discussed this many years ago when we did Wasatiyah, who is more virtuous, Aisha or Khadija? Radiallahu anhumah. Who is more virtuous? Aisha or Khadija radiallahu anhuma? Who is more virtuous? Aisha or Khadija? Aisha, why? Because? A long way in the lineage, but anything else? Why? No, no, I'm I'm uh-huh. <laughs> Start your answer with who's more virtuous first. They're both equal. 
equal in virtue? Anybody have a definitive answer? Go on. Aisha or Khadija? So Khadija, because she was the first woman to become a Muslim. See, that's a proper answer. That's a proper answer. Well, you guys politics. So there you have this, you have a difference. All right. Here the scholars, they've said the same kind of point. Each one of them has their independent virtues that are different to the other one. So again, it ends up a bit like apples and pears. It's not directly comparable because the virtues of Khadija are all related to the early days of Islam. Whereas the virtues of Aisha are related to the latter days and what was, what remained after that. So the role of Khadija was completely different to the role of Aisha. Completely different, so they have their virtues in their own regards. So, uh, ah, the point here was in Asabatu Dharra Sabara wa in Asabatu Sarra Shakara. If difficulty overcomes that person, he's patient, and if goodness overcomes him, he is grateful. Wa Yasbir, and he's also patient. Wa huwa ma'allahi azza wa jal fi qadaihi wa qadari. دائما منبسط في الضراء وفي السراء A person, that type of believer when it comes to the decree of Allah whether it is difficulties or it is happiness and joy that person is always in a state of comfort in his heart even at the times of difficulty and hardship he is in a state where he has contentment and comfort in his heart, knowing that all of it is the decree of Allah, even in the times of difficulty, knowing that Allah says in the Quran, yusra, indeed with difficulty comes ease, and whomsoever fears Allah, Allah will make him a way out. So a person recognizes that, recognizes all of it is by the decree of Allah, so even at the times of difficulty, knows that this is a test and remains patient, continues with his dua, continues with his dependence and trust in Allah. And if a person did that, then you would notice a considerable difference in your life. What is it that impacts people so much now, all of this depression that goes around, due to their lack of understanding of these basics? That even in the times of difficulty and what is happening, what has been decreed, then it is the decree of Allah. It comes and it goes, what happens in these days. Allah said, those are the days that we alternate between the people. Meaning you have days of happiness, Allah decrees for you. And you have days of difficulty and trial, Allah decrees upon you. But that is the test and they are the days that alternate between the people. So a person remembers that and remains patient, knowing it is the decree of Allah, and knowing that the exit from that difficulty will come from Allah, not from abandoning the religion, abandoning dua. So that is 
where we'll have to round off for today. We'll carry on with the next narration uh, from the next session, insha'Allah ta'ala, from next week after the Isha prayer. Anything else up to there? Eating the meat of the people of the book, there is no difference of opinion about it whatsoever. It is halal. But in terms of this country, I mean, you know, going to like bad and Moshe and then stop it there just to go to McDonald's. Yeah, I'm just waiting to see how long it was going to take for McDonald's to be mentioned. So eating the people, eating the meat of the people of the book, there is no dispute whatsoever. Absolute ruling, it's halal. However, the issue that sometimes arises is, well, often arises, is this country then, McDonald's and all these places, can you eat that meat then? The default is, the default is this country is a Christian country, and therefore you can argue that the default is, it is therefore permissible meat, and that is a legitimate opinion. You could also argue, though, uh, that even though it is a Christian country officially, that the reality, the reality that is known is that on the latest consensus, I think it was barely scraping past the 50% mark who identify as Christian which is likely now then at the next consensus in terms of physical numbers, this country is not actually a Christian country. Officially it will remain, the monarchy, everything. So a person may argue that we know that the real ground situation is that practically 50% here are not Christian, they are atheist. And that's the way it's going. So... Are we really safe in going to these places? Are they really Christians who are providing this meat? Or are they from the masses of atheists, which is practically half, if not more by now, of the country, perhaps already now, the majority of the country? Is that an argument? Some will say that can't be used as an argument anyway. Because the country is officially a Christian country. So you can't use that argument. It is an official Christian country. Christianity, the monarchy, everything. The Church of England, all of that. But others, you could argue and say, but we know, without any investigation or anything, we know that the reality is, practically now more than likely, the physical numbers, the majority are atheist rather than Christian. So then can we say safely that we are eating the meat of the people of the book when we know that half, if not more, of the country are atheists? So it's no longer in reality and practically a Christian country. That is the issue that is brought up. Upon that issue, then you may have an argument that 
And it may go even beyond that in saying that we know certain companies and certain uh, slaughterhouses and whatever they are, we know they are atheists. So that is the debate on that side of it. The stronger debate or the stronger basis is likely to say that it's a Christian country, therefore the meat is halal. But the other argument has a basis to it if you say without any investigation, we know that the majority or very many of them now, they're not Christian at all. No such thing as Christianity in them. Atheists. No, no, nothing about Christianity or believe in it. Never been to church in their life. Haven't got a clue what Christianity is. They were brought up that way, their parents. Nothing else. So then that may be an argument to say it's not really uh, legitimate to eat the meat. That's just one level of things. Then you get to all the other level about the actual method of their slaughtering. The stunning, stunning, and if the meat dies from the stunning, then it's haram, of course. Then there's that whole debate. Then on the level beyond that, there is also the issue of contamination. As some of the scholars have mentioned, that even if it was the meat of the people of the book, if there is contamination with the haram materials, the haram foods, then you can't have that food. Meaning you go to a shop, for example, a fish and chip shop, <coughs> you want to order fish and chips. In that very one tray of oil, they've just been cooking some pork. They've just been cooking some bacon. They've been cooking something haram. Previous customer took it out with the sieve and given it him. Now they're going to put your chips and your fish into that, use the same sieve, everything. There, some of the scholars, they've mentioned that's not allowed then. You can't say, but fish and chips. That now there, because of that clear contamination between all of the haram food in there, then you can't have that. So there's a, a, a variety of issues. There are a variety of issues with that. The least issues are going to be going down to the Tesco and those places and picking up chicken. But more issues are going to start arriving when you get to takeaways and contamination and those types of things. But I'm sure everybody's got a lot to say on the topic. There is a lot to say on the topic. It's not that easy, but the default is it's halal. But you do have to consider the contamination thing and bear that in mind also. But in Manchester, there's not much of an issue where you have the Jewish community. You have the kosher shops. As halal as you can be. You go to the Jewish shops, you can buy the meat, you can buy whatever. This whole debate is only on the Christianity issue. This whole debate doesn't even come into the Jewish issue. You go to the Jewish shops, buy what you want. I remember when we used to live here, when I was here many years ago, there used to be one brother with us living with us at the house when we were students. He was living with us in the house and he didn't understand this thing. He was new, new to practicing. He didn't understand, eat the meat of the Jews and the Christians. He said, what are you talking, haram, dirty. Didn't understand. So we used to say to him, we're going to go to the kosher shop one day. We're going to buy meat from there, put it in the fridge, you won't even know. You're going to pick it up, you're going to eat the meat of the Jews. Halal though, halal. You go to the Jewish shop, no problem. I remember one time I was on a flight. I thought to myself, maybe they'll give good service if I select the kosher meal. I'll get some big meal, nice meal. Sometimes you select the Muslim meal, all you get is the vegetarian option. <laughs> now that, that's true, that's real. 
All you get sometimes is the vegetarian option. That's the Muslim meal. Sometimes they make an effort, give you chicken and everything else. So one time, I decided I'll pick the kosher. I thought maybe there'd be a nice big meal, everything for the kosher option. So when it came, the, the, the normal kind of rice and bits and bobs came. And then when it came to the dessert section now, because obviously all these desserts have various types of things that wouldn't be classed as kosher, cakes and everything that are biscuits, cakes, uh, uh, truffles, all these things, they have ingredients that wouldn't be considered kosher. So on my meal, all of those juicy desserts were off and they gave me a, a, an orange wrapped up in, in uh, uh, the white stuff, what do you call it? The clean film. An orange wrapped in that, and on the way back, an apple wrapped in that. And all of the cakes and everything, not kosher. But that's all halal. The, with the, uh, the meat of the people of the book is halal, but the issues are these other issues that come into it. But it's, it's debatable, and you can take those debates elsewhere. So we'll round off on that. Carry on next week, insha'Allah ta'ala. Wa sallallahu ala nabiya Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in.